Second Peter chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men, of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures." You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall all, that you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful that we've gotten to study this book together as a family, verse by verse, and we've learned so many things, Lord, and we want to um, learn, Lord, and we want to be changed. We want to be comforted and encouraged, Lord. Would you use these verses for your special use in our lives by your Spirit? We pray that your Spirit would be our teacher this morning. We pray you'd set this time aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Peter is sharing his last words to this church, as we've seen. And he loves these people. He's been writing about false teachers. We saw that uh, the last couple weeks. Specifically, last week, we saw him focus mainly on two things. The certainty of God's uh, future judgment and the certainty of God's deliverance of the righteous. Because the fallacy 
that those Christians could have been believing was that these false teachers appear to be getting away with things, and because it appeared that way, then maybe they're always going to get away with it, and judgment won't come their way. And also, uh, we saw him provide three different examples of God's judgment, that God has a history of judging when appropriate. We saw him give the example of fallen angels, we saw him give the world in Noah's day as an example of being judged when he flooded the earth. And lastly, Sodom and Gomorrah, God judged them for their wickedness. So we saw God judge those three parties or, or groups of people or entities, however you want to say it, perfectly and flawlessly. And so he's saying, you know, don't forget that God will judge and don't forget also that he's faithful to deliver. And that's why he said that Lot was, was righteous. That's why he said Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was comparing those uh, that God delivered to these, these Christians that are getting persecuted and dealing with false doctrine, that they're going to be someday delivered. That's encouraging to them. That's a, that would be a huge encouragement to know that all of this that's going on in their lives someday is going to end. And that's the, the case for us. Maybe you're suffering here today. Maybe you're going through an incredible trial God is using those things in your life as we sang today. He works all things together for good. And so he's not going to waste any of those things. He's going to use those things in your life. But there will be an end to it someday. And that's encouraging for us. Now in this week, as we look at uh, chapter 3, he's going to focus on three things. He's going he's to warn them that scoffers who mock our belief in the second coming are going to come. Secondly, he's going to describe God's judgment of the heavens and the earth. And lastly, he's going to talk about how we are to live in light of God's coming judgment. So we begin in verse 1. Notice Peter brings up his motivation for writing his letters. He says, Beloved, now I write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now he begins with beloved. And that word beloved means, we don't use it a lot in our culture. You don't usually say Hey, beloved, how are you doing? You don't usually say that. Uh, but it, some people do. I do. And it means one who is loved or ones who are loved. That's what he's saying to this church. You're loved. And you, when you love somebody, you tell them not just what they want to hear. You tell them what they need to hear. And sometimes it requires great sacrifice on the person that is speaking to say the things that someone needs to hear. We should not silence people in our lives that want to tell us what we need to hear. That we should welcome that and, and be thankful. But if we're prideful and unteachable, we resist those people. We don't want them in our lives. And then we surround ourselves with people that will tell us what we want to hear. And when that happens, we're in a very dangerous place. So he says, beloved, you're, they're the ones that I love. And he does say this word uh, four times in our chapter. So he's going to tell them repeatedly that he loves them. So he says, I, I now write to you this second epistle in, in both of which, in other words, in both letters, First and Second Peter, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So he, he says they possess pure minds. This is interesting. I bet you that many of them would say, I have a pure mind. You're talking to me a lot about holiness and my need for holiness. I have a pure mind. Well, they, their minds are being renewed. All of our minds are being renewed as believers. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed, be continuously be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we're also told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that we have the mind of Christ. 
He has renewed our minds at, when we came to know him. He has enlightened our minds at in, in, in a certain level where that's, that's completely from him and, and it's supernatural and we have his understanding of life and death and our need to be saved. I remember when I first received the Lord 20, almost 24 years ago, the light goes on. Spiritually speaking, you see what's going on behind the scenes. You see that there's a battle between good and evil. You see people as saved and unsaved. It's like you, your eyes are open to, to what's going on in people's lives spiritually. That's the mind of Christ that we have. So he's not saying they don't have need to grow in, in their understanding or that their minds don't require further uh, renewing. He's just saying you've been changed by Christ and you have an understanding spiritually that other people don't have. Remember Paul said in one of his letters that the unbelievers can't properly process the word of God. He said they have to be spiritually discerned. Well, since we have the mind of Christ, we have the capacity to discern and weigh out and compare spiritual things with spiritual things. So he says, you have pure mind. But notice also he says that they need to be reminded. So just because you have the mind of Christ and your mind is pure does not mean that you don't need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded. We need to hear things over and over again because we forget but also, at any given time, we're not obeying what God's Word says. Yesterday, I could, have, I could have been obeying it. But today, when I read God's Word, I'm not obeying it. So that's why God uses the comparison of a mirror related to looking into God's Word. Because both the Bible and mirrors are supposed to assess a current condition. Mirrors for our current physical condition, which can be a really sad thing sometimes in the morning. Whoa! Um, but the Bible for our current spiritual condition. And we should welcome both of those things. You should welcome the mirror in the morning. It's good for us. Okay, verse (laughs) 2. That you may be mindful of the words. Notice he says mindful. Mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's saying you need to be mindful of things that were spoken before and mindful of what we've said to you. Remember Jesus in the Great uh, Commission said, to, he said to the disciples, to, they need to be baptized, go into the world to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And so that, that's what one of their roles uh, was, is to pass on the teaching that people are supposed to have. So he's saying to these believers that you're, you're dealing with persecution here. That's not new. All the way through the scriptures, you see that. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, uh, persecution going on. You've always had false teaching. There's always been tares that have been sown by the enemy in God's field. That's nothing new. And the answer has always been to cling to the word of God. And so what he's going to get at is he's going to talk about, begin to talk about the second coming. And, the, and these false teachers were coming in. They were mocking the doctrine of the second coming. And he's saying your foundation should be not what they say, but what was spoken already by the holy prophets in the Old Testament and what we've said in the New Testament. You know, there's, there's dozens and dozens, I think over 70-something times the Apostle Paul talks about grace, and there's all these times where these important words are used. But I don't know of a doctrine that's mentioned more in the New Testament than the second coming. Over 300 references to the, new, to the second coming in the New Testament, far more than anything else. And so he's saying that's what you need to believe. That's what you need to hold on to. 
Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers, now a scoffer means a critic who mocks, that's what the word scoffer means, will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In the last days, you know, that really started during Jesus' ministry and continues all the way up to now. We're in the last of the last days, I believe. But he's telling them, you're, you're dealing with persecution, you're dealing with hardship. That's not going to happen forever. There's days that are numbered, and these are the last days there. And so this, this insane, ungodly world will not continue forever like it is. But these scoffers come in and they mock the second coming. What do they mock at? Or what do they make fun of? They scoff at God's intervention into this world. You know, it's, sometimes it's called uniformitarianism, where they, everything has stayed the same. There's been no catastrophes. They believe everything's been steady. All the, that's why they hate the flood. They don't want to hear about catastrophes. It's all, everything's been stayed the same. God hasn't intervened, and they mock that idea because they look and they don't see God intervening in this world, nor do they see that God ever has intervened. Hello, the cross. Hello, Jesus. Hello, prophecies. Hello, I mean, the flood. I mean, you could go on and on and on. God has intervened. But what it really gets down to is it has to do with moral judgment. They don't want to be held accountable by God for the behavior. They mock that God's ever going to judge. Oh, you Christians saying God's going to judge. He's going to hold this world into account. We haven't seen it yet. All things continue the same. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and, but God is going to judge. And, when, and, and what Peter quotes isn't that, you know, because they, they, they always disagree or their reasons they claim are intellectual, but they're not. <laughs> they're anything but intellectual. They're moral. And, and so they're fulfilling God's word by, by mocking and by bringing, because you're just saying, thank you, I appreciate you bringing this up and mocking because God's word already told me that you were going to be mocking and now you're fulfilling prophecy. How does that make you feel? And you say God doesn't intervene. <laughs> you're you're, you're a fulfilling prophecy right now by your mockery there. But the issue is moral. You may remember the Lord Jesus saying in John chapter 3, this is the condemnation. That men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. So we, we have Uncle Larry there at Thanksgiving. And you know, oh, here we go again with these Christians. And, you know, we, give, we let them pray. We give them a token prayer once a year. And they go off and talk about the Lord and the gospel and all that. And, and, you know, and I, just, I just, you know, what about... What about angels dancing on the head of a pin how many could they you know what about uh, adam's navel and you know what about bible codes and y2k and how that relates and all on this like stirring all this stuff up and they're, they're, they think it's all by intellectual uh, some intellectual high ground that they're taking but they're not jesus said it's because they love darkness they don't want to be held into account related to their behavior so jesus told us the real reason why people reject light is because they don't want to be held morally accountable. I think every person that holds fast to evolution, that's, that, that has seen a lot of the evidence and so forth, to the contrary, it's not anything close to an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. They want to, be look, they want to look at the things that they're looking at on the Internet. They want to have you know, multiple relationships. They want to be engaged in all these things. They don't want to hope, have anyone tell them what they, 
what they can do or can't do in their lives. That's the real reason. And so that's why he says in the middle of verse 3, will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. He gives the reason right there in verse 3. That's why they mock, not for intellectual (laughs) reasons whatsoever. It's because of their lust. They're walking according to their own lusts. Verse 5, for this they willfully, notice that, willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. When God spoke his word, creation happened out of nothing. I love when the scientists say, oh, we created amino acids in a laboratory. And, you know, yeah, you use, cre- you use creation to create something. Try having nothing at all and, and make some of those things. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, Genesis goes, especially chapter 1, goes into detail about how God separated the waters and the firmament and all of that. You can read that on your own. And that's what he's, he's getting at. But he says, by which the world that then existed Perish. And I believe the by which is still speaking of his word. His word initiated the flood. There was a point in time where God's word spoke. He spoke and said, this is going to happen. This judgment's going to happen. I've called Noah to prepare an ark and so forth. And he's done that for 100, 100 years or so, building this ark. And so now the time has come. And he spoke and that day of judgment came and, and everything perished, and God put a sign, a rainbow. It's not anyone else's rainbow to claim. God's rainbow says that he will never flood the earth again by water. He will never judge this world again by water. But he never said he wouldn't judge it by fire. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's going to judge it by fire. So he says, and the issue is God's word. God's word created. God's word judged. And he's, and he's calling those believers to fall back on what God's word says, even in the face of this mockery, even in the face of these scoffers. Now he's building to, some, to something. Let's continue verse 7. By the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, see, it's, again, it's his word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He says the heavens and the earth, and that includes the earth and the stars. Okay, he, when, he, when you read the, the days of creation, when he created the stars, I love how he says, I mean, there's billions and billions and billions of stars and galaxies and all that. And he just says in Genesis, and he created the stars also. It's a little side thing I was doing. And I created the stars also. Because we're talking about an all-powerful God here. When it, there's, no, there's no limitations uh, with him. So he says they're being preserved right now. Notice that. He says in verse 7, which are now preserved by the same word. Same word as what? The same word, the same person spoke that created everything. The same person spoke who flooded the, 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 the world by, in judgment. And now that same word is preserving the heavens and the earth right now. It's not by accident. It's purposeful. He's preserving it for something he's going to get into the rest of the verse. Are reserved. They're preserved and reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. We talk a lot about that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and God's going to take away this earth and and the heavens and all that. We rarely connect that with judgment, but that's what it says at the end of verse 7. Until the day of judgment and perdition 
of ungodly men. And the ungodliness of man has tarnished this world. And he's going to do a new heaven and a new earth. It continues in verse 8. But, beloved, there's our word again, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't measure time how we measure time. He's transcendent of time. He's outside of time. I've used this illustration before, but it's so good I want to use it again. And it's not original. You know, anything that's good is not original. I take it from somewhere. But if you're, you're there at a parade and the parade's coming and there seems to be a, you know, these events that occur as, as, as it passes, time is going by from your perspective. But if you're on a rooftop and you're looking at the beginning and the end of the parade at the same time, then you have a different vantage point. God's outside of time because time is just the measurement of events. God has no need to measure events, to catalog events. Events still happen in eternity. It's not like we're frozen. When you're a kid, you're thinking, well, what's happening in eternity when there's no time? Are we just frozen? No, there's things going on. There's events happening. Just no one's measuring it anymore. No one's tracking it anymore and organizing it anymore. So God is outside of time. He's trans, transcendent. And, and so what, why does Peter say that? I believe he says it, that God is sovereign. He's huge. He's big. And he's outside of time. So we think that God's late. He's not late. It just was like a half a second on his timetable. And if you look at it, I mean, think about it. 6,000 years, people get all crazy with these theories and stuff. I'm not recommending that. But if you look at the history of man, 6,000 years, and we're about to end that sixth day, and then there's the thousand-year millennium and this day of rest. I mean, it lines up. But people get crazy with their prophetic formulas and practically need an Excel spreadsheet to track it all and figure it out. It gets so complicated just by something that Peter's just saying. He's not giving him a formula. He's just saying God is, is, is in control. And you may think that he's taking so long, but in his timetable, it's not long. Which also means that something that we think that God would take, could take a thousand years to accomplish, he can do in just like that, because he's outside of time. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What does slack mean? We don't usually use that word. It means late. I was really good at being late growing up. It's like as if I had a degree in late and tardiness. I didn't have a hall pass. I didn't have excuses. I just was late. I was a slacker. I was walking around like, remember Shaggy from Scooby-Doo? Sorry for this, but, you know, Shaggy, when he walked around, he had his legs and his hips out, and he would just... his arms swinging and so forth. That's what I was walking around. That's how I was. I was just, I'm in no hurry. I'm just cruising around. And, and then I started having to learn responsibility and have to be places and so forth. It was a big problem. And it was very painful. But after a while, I learned how to be a little bit more on time. But what he's saying here, God is not late. See, when you're going through a trial, when you're suffering, persecution, false teachers, whatever it is, we think that God's late. He's never late. He's rarely early. He's usually right on time. So he's saying, the Lord is not late concerning his promise to come back, as some count slackness. And what that means is, as some calculate lateness or tardiness according to their standard. He's saying that these critics, these people that mock, 
Their, their watches are set to a different standard. So they're calculating his, his timing based off another standard and saying, according to their standard, he's late. But he's not, going, he's not functioning according to their standard. He's going according to his timetable. He's not late at all. So he's saying some calculate lateness a certain way, but the reason why he's, he's waited as long as he's waiting, look at the, the middle of verse 9. Long-suffering towards us. Long-suffering towards us. That's why he is waiting. Because he cares. He's patient. Now, we think of that. Lord, why, what are you waiting for? This world's getting worse and worse. There's terrorists. There's, there's debt. There's sickness. There's, there's people be doing horrible things. It's getting worse and worse. And as Christians, we have to be very careful as we can start panicking and thinking that somehow God's not in control anymore. He's not on the throne. And somehow this isn't according to his timetable. And we can start thinking that, you know, he, he, he's, he's late. He's not late at all. This is all culminating according to his plan. There will be a one world government. There will be a one world currency. There will be a way that you pay for it by your right, not you, because and me, because we'll be gone. But in, people will boop right across the thing. Boop. You know, no one will be able to steal it. It'll be a mark on your on your right hand or your forehead. There's going to be a one world leader, and I believe it's probably going to happen, in, 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 at least in some degree, by debt. The whole world going bankrupt, and them saying, "Well, it's a whole global system now, and we're all interconnected. All of our sovereignties are wiped out." We need to, you know, go this direction, and people will be willing to do that at this time, at that time, and so forth. It's getting worse and worse and worse. But the reason why he's waiting is because for us, for patience' sake, he's being patient for us because he says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a very big statement there. He's waiting. He's not late. He's waiting because he wants as many people saved as possible. Now, we're, we're okay with him coming back after we get saved. <laughs> it's like, but I don't, once I get saved, now I'm good. It's just like as if there's other people in the building that it's on fire. We get out, and we want, we want the, you know, to, 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 the fire department to leave and us to be taken out of there when there's people still in the building. We wouldn't do that. But the fire that the unbelievers are facing are way worse than any building structure fire. And so God is willing that none should perish. So he's waiting. He's patient. He says there's a finite number of Gentiles that have to be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles, it's called. We don't know how many that number is. And so there's, a, there's going to be one last d- d- Gentile that says, I accept Jesus, amen, and boom, we're gone. The rapture happens. There won't be one person more or less than that number that only he knows. So we have to be busy about his business, being caring about the things that he cares about. Are we, are, are we willing that any should perish? Are we wanting people to come to repentance? That's his heart. He's seeking and saving the lost, and he wants to primarily do it through us. And we can get so comfortable in, in, in our lives that we can say, oh, you know, I'm good, I'm happy, I'm content. Jesus, take me back. And he's saying, I care about more people than just you. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we need to be reminded of that. We know that, but we need to be reminded because we get so in, enveloped in our lives and what's going on. I do want to say one thing about this verse that's related to Reformed theology or Calvinism because this refutes it. Because they hold, and they're our brothers and so forth, but we need to teach the Bible when the Bible speaks certain doctrines. 
There are certain people that believe that God elects certain people to be saved and then he comes in and puts his Holy Spirit inside of them before they don't even know about it. He puts his spirit inside of them that gives them the capacity to have faith and repentance. And then now they're Christians. But, and then if you're not one of the elect, he doesn't do that for you. So he doesn't put his spirit inside of you. He doesn't give you the capacity to receive him and you can't be saved. Now, that's false for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because at the, at the great white throne judgment, where unbelievers are resurrected for judgment, the person that would primarily be on trial, if that were true, would be God. Because a person that didn't know him would have a legitimate criticism of him. He could say, hey, you can't hold me accountable for having my name not being in that book of life because I had no capacity to receive Christ. You didn't put your spirit inside of me. You can't judge me for this. And they would have a legitimate beef with God, and he would be the one that's on trial. But we know from that, that great white throne judgment, he's not on trial. It's, it's a perfect, righteous judgment there. So they try to misinterpret this, they try to interpret the scripture a different way to try to say that all doesn't mean all there. It just means the elect. But what about the word any? <laughs> Does that mean something else too? There's other scriptures related to that. So he is willing, not willing that any, not just the elect, should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we need to never forget that because God is wanting to save everybody and he wants us, he wants to use us to do it. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It's nice and perky and, you know, joyful and no it's serious it's 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 the real deal here the day of the lord starts right after the rapture goes all the way through the millennium actually and it's it's god interrupting man's timetable the day of man has been going on god gave man control and as a manager of this earth he's going to take that control away when he interrupts uh everything again with the great white throne or the um tribulation and the and the and the um the millennium so he says that's going to come, the beginning of that's going to come as a thief in the night. Paul said the same thing. He talked about the same thing in, in, uh, in, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians there. So we're told that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment all through the Old Testament over 19 times. It's only mentioned five times in the New Testament there. But he says it's like a thief that's going to come. Thieves come unexpectedly. You don't expect them. It overtakes, they overtake you. All their preparation is done beforehand. They, they, they surprise us when a thief comes. And then he says, the heavens will pass away with the great noise. And the word there is the word from which we get our word crackle. Yeah, I, don't, I can't describe it, obviously. But it's a great noise. And he says, the elements will melt with fervent heat. And he says, notice both the earth and the works. Not just the earth, works. Remember, this is about judgment. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And this isn't new. God spoke of this in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, where he says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. That sounds like Revelation. At all their hosts shall fall down. It's talking about the stars. As the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. So we need to understand, what's he really getting at? There's, when he dissolves everything, it's, he's, but what it, what it, really what he's doing is he's, he's 
melting it. He's, he's loosening it. That's, the, that's what it means. Because if you see the word melt there in verse 10, and then the word dissolved in verse 11, and again in verse 12, the word dissolved, it's the same Greek word. And it means to loosen. So God is going to loosen the elements. We're told in Scripture that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things consist or congeal or are held together. He also tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So God himself, Jesus, is holding the, our atoms together. Remember, this whole creation is made out of chemicals. So he's holding atoms together. And there, there's, they have the same, they have the same uh, magnetic uh, uh, poles or whatever in, in much of it, and it should go apart. And scientists don't understand. Why, is the, why, is, why aren't they going, going apart? Why are they staying together? And they call it atomic glue. We know why. Jesus is holding it all together. What you think about, on that cross, he's holding the cross together. He's holding those fists together. He's holding the crown of thorns together. He's holding all of those things together by the word of his power. He's holding it all together. So all what Peter says is he's going to loosen it. He's just going to let go. He doesn't have to actively do anything. All he has to do is let go what he's holding together. Just like when we split an atom, what happens? Bad stuff happens when you split an atom. He's just going to let it go. And the whole universe, all the elements of it, it's all going to disintegrate and and, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth from it. He's just going to loosen it. Now, in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, he's going to link this judgment of how he's going to make everything be loosed and and let all the elements melt. He's going to link that to that judgment to how we are to live as disciples. He starts in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's not a popular topic among many Christians. We don't want to talk about holiness. We don't want to talk about uh, godliness. I mean, how many best-selling Christian books are on the subject of holiness? Not very many. I don't want to talk about that. that. That gets into what I do, what I say, what movies I watch, what TV programs I watch, the people I'm around, the music I listen to. And, you know, I don't want anyone talking to me about that because I have freedom to do whatever I want. And no, you don't as a Christian. So we, we even in churches, sadly, there's so many subjects and discussions and, you know, teachings that are so man-centered, and they're usually the topic or the theme is prosperity and how am I to be a successful this and a successful that and so forth. Where is the holiness? Where is the fear of God? Where is the desire to, to please God with my life and let him bear fruit through my life and have that be pleasing to him? They don't think it's palatable because it's not. People don't want that. But he's not calling leaders to be led. He's calling leaders to lead. To be an example, to, to, to preach the word. As, as Paul told Timothy, convince, rebuke, convict with all long suffering and patience. For men will not always endure sound doctrine. And men aren't enduring sound doctrine around in this world. And I'm thankful for churches like Calvary Chapel, and there are many of them outside of Calvary Chapel, that teach the word and are faithful to cover verses and let the passage speak for itself. We need it. So he's saying, since all these things will be dissolved, there's expectations from God on how we should live. And the question is 
is how do I do it? How do I live holy? How do I live a godly way? You walk with God. It's not complicated. You walk with God. Now, how that's supposed to look is a little bit different related to our time with him each day, when that is, what we're reading, you know, how much we're praying, how much we're fellowshipping consistently, how, how, where we're serving. All of that looks different. But nevertheless, it's supposed to grow, and we're supposed to increase in those things. We're about to start the book of 1 John, unless we get raptured. We're, supposed to, we're going to be starting that book. And in chapter 3, verse 2, we're told this, Beloved, so John says beloved too, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what, sh- what we shall be. He's talking about in, in the next life. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this is the verse that's related to our passage. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Same thing that Peter's saying. In light of the fact that God's going to dissolve this universe and judge this world and so forth, how are we supposed to live? And we're supposed to be looking for Christ's return. And as we look for Christ's return, it's supposed to affect how I live. Later in in verse 14, he's going to say the three words found by him when he comes for us. We're going to be found by him when he comes. Now, when he comes, could be in the middle of the night, and I might be sleeping. But if I'm not sleeping, and it's in the day, or in the evening, or in the afternoon, what am I going to be doing when he comes? The fact that he could come at any moment, that's supposed to produce a sobriety and a holiness in my life to be able to please him with how I'm living. And that's a beautiful thing to him, how I live. So he told a parable that talked about using our talents using those things he's entrusted to us. And in that parable, the the businessman, so so to speak, went away and came back. He had expectations for how those servants were supposed to be living in light of his investment in them with what he entrusted them with. And he told them to to, to be watching, to be waiting, and to be working, occupying, being faithful until he comes. And only then will we hear good and faithful servant. And that's that's what he wants us to, to hear from him. Verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So we're supposed to be looking for that. We can go weeks and months and years without looking for his return. Oh, well, he's going to come for me anyway. I don't have to think about it. No, we're supposed to be looking for it. We're supposed to be, you know when you lose something you can't find, you're, you're trying to find you you're looking for it. You're, you're actively looking for it because something is going on in you and in in, in how you need that thing while you can't find it. And, and so that's what he's saying. While you're looking for his return, he's going to do a work in us. And he says, hastening there. Now, there's, I have to cover both positions here because it's the only responsible thing to do. There's two, even within the Greek scholar community, whoever they are, they disagree on what hast- the significance of hastening there. Half of them say that it means you're eagerly desiring. So you're looking for and eagerly desiring the coming of the day of God. The other half say it's really better translated affecting, that you're looking for and affecting the coming. In other words, by being busy about his business, by preaching the gospel, by being salt and light in this world, you're actually hastening it in the sense of you're, you're speeding it up or bringing it to fruition or being a part of it coming to fruition. Either way, the point is we're supposed to live holy. That's the common thread, and he'll use it. Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, 
look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is beautiful. That righteousness, don't it be great to live in a society where righteousness dwells? That's what it's going to be like in the millennium in large part. But when the new earth comes, the new Jerusalem, that's going to be all about righteousness there. But it's not a new idea. Psalm 102 verses 25 and 26 tells us this. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will change them, and they will be changed. Isaiah said it also in Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 18. Or Isaiah prophesied, For behold, I create a new heaven, or I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall be not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. So it's not an old idea that he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, there he says, beloved again, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot. And blameless. The key word there is diligent. Be diligent. All of us are called to be diligent. To, so when he finds us, remember I said those three words, to be found by him, found by him, that's there in verse 14. When he comes, he wants to find us in peace, unlike these false teachers. Find us in peace without spot and blameless and be holy before him. Verse 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That's, the, that's what that patience is. It is salvation. The fact that he's waiting means that, that we're going to be delivered someday in his perfect timing. And the most amount of people possible will know him. That last Gentile that's supposed to be saved will be saved. Also, As also our beloved uh, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them, of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Isn't that encouraging that Peter said Paul's writings are hard to understand? It gives us hope. Peter didn't even, it was like, I don't know what Paul's saying. I read Romans. It's like, whoa, uh, you know, it's not just us struggling with that. Peter struggled with that. He says it's hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. And it is noteworthy that Peter is saying that Paul's writings are scripture. That's what he's saying at the end of verse 16. They twist his words as they do the rest of the scriptures. What Paul wrote is scripture, and Peter knew it. Remember, Jesus promised them that he would bring all things back to their remembrance. He said, but when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's how they could remember all of it, because the Holy Spirit brought those things back to their remembrance. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, there he says it the last time, Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. So that we can fall from our own steadfastness. And so he's wanting us to be consistent. He's wanting us to be faithful. We all can grow in faithfulness. And, and that is a, its own protection in our lives for being, for being um, against being led away with the air of wicked people, false teachers. And he says, but something positive there in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He began the book with grace. 
He's ending the book with grace. Peter had a good handle on God's grace. He needed to. He wouldn't even be in ministry at this time if he hadn't received God's grace through the Lord Jesus' restoration of him after he uh, um, denied the Lord. And so he's had that grace applied to his heart. And remember when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked you by name to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter would fail, but his faith would not fail. And he said, and when you return, strengthen your brethren. And that's what Peter did. He did it for the 30 years before this point where he's writing this book, right after he was restored, all the way up to this time. And he's been doing it through First and Second Peter, all the way through the church age into now. He's strengthening the brethren. How? Through grace through demonstrating God's grace and telling us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is returning. doesn't matter what any mocker says. He's coming back. He's going to judge this world. There is a day of the Lord coming. And, and he wants us, as we're waiting, as, as we're waiting for that, as we're looking to that, expecting that, letting that purify us by living holy for him, he wants us to live lives pleasing to him and grow in our steadfastness. Let's do that. Let's pray together. Well, we thank you for Second for Peter, Lord. We thank you for our brother that was led by you to write these two epistles. And we just pray, Lord, that as we think about all this, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit and that you would help us to know how to apply these things. Help us to be faithful. Help every one of us here to be faithful, Lord, in our walk with you and to be consistent and to be growing in our life of holiness. Thank you that you do allow us to be holy and we don't have to live the life that we always lived before, that we could live differently, Lord. Thank you for your grace and power that gives us the capacity to live a different kind of life. Make us more holy, Lord. Help us to grow in our walk. We pray that you would bear much fruit through, our, through us individually and through us as a family. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's